Today we're going to take a look at Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. I've entitled this talk, A Study in Contrasts, or not. One of the reactions uh, to the complexity of this crazy world that we live in, one of our reactions can be denial. Instead of recognizing and acknowledging, admitting our inability to fully comprehend the challenges of our day, we insist that that which is actually gray is black or white. We double down on simplistic, accessible worldviews that, that suggest that anything can sort of be explained quite easily. We surround ourselves with, with, with like-minded people. We, we listen to news sources that feed our worldview. We join political parties or organizations that just reinforce our simplistic view of a very complex world. And the truth be told, not everything is black and white. I can see this instinct that we have of, of trying to simplify so that it's accessible and, and sort of easy to manage. It's a, a coping mechanism. I can see that even in how we see God. God is complex. As Colleen read from Isaiah 54, he, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're, they're, they're just so far beyond. But we have this instinct. We, we need to make it Attainable. We need to be able to make everything accessible. We need to be able to explain everything. And so what we do is we try to create a box, a box of our own making to fit God into so that we can make sense of him. Some things about God are clearly black and white. He is the God supreme, the only true God. He is in control. He started this world. His hand is overseeing this world. And ultimately, on his impulse, things will come to an end. He's in control. His power and his wisdom and his, his love are, are perfect. You cannot find fault with him. But, you know, even with God, we, 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 we quickly run into complexities that are hard for us to comprehend. Unless, of course, we dumb it down and, and simplify it and, and make God fit into our paradigms. We filter God through our filters. In fact, we... we Make him into our image, the opposite of the fact that Scripture tells us that we are created in his image. 
This passage, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, is one that forces us to abandon our tendency to, to simplify God. The writer explains two very different experiences of God. Two very different experiences of God. And the error would be is to look at those two experiences and somehow come to the conclusion because we need to make this fit into our box of God or the box that we put God into. We need to, The error would be to, to say that somehow the experience are different because God is different. Somehow he changed. God never changes. Let's take a look at those two experiences that the author is, uh, that I'm referring to, that the author has written. The titles in, in my Aviva Bible are The Mountain of Fear and The Mountain of Joy. Let's start with Hebrews 12, verses 18. 21, the mountain of fear. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The mountain of joy. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The writer is describing two very different experiences of God. The first description is a description of the people of Israel under the command of Moses as they have been delivered miraculously from slavery in Egypt and they are moving slowly, progressively towards the land that God has promised to them. And they come to a mountain, and that mountain is Sinai. Let me read to you Exodus 19. That describes their experience. On the first day of the third month of, um, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is, is to be put to death. They're to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to them, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, what an experience with God on the mountain known as the mountain of fear, Mount Sinai. You see, the people were on a journey, and it was a literal physical journey, leaving Egypt, going to Canaan. They came to a mountain, a real mountain, temporal mountain. It was a terrifying experience. It was a paralyzing experience in that they were limited. They were, there were boundaries set. And I'll tell you, if I was given those limits and those boundaries, I wouldn't move. <laughs> I wouldn't step left. I wouldn't step right. I was like, I'm, where does the mountain start? And Mount Sinai, other than God himself, was inhabited by one person who was shaken in his boots, and that was Moses. And he had special permission to be there. The other experience of God 
is a very different experience of God. It's the experience written by the author of Hebrews about the mountain of joy. And it's not a literal, physical journey he's referring to. He's being figurative. He's not being literal. And he's speaking about a spiritual journey that his readers have been on, and those of us who read it today have been on. We have come to. We have not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is, is once again, it is a literal, Zion is a literal place. It's, it's where the city of Jerusalem is, the city of God, where God inhabits, figuratively. And so we have come to the city of God, to Mount Zion, Zion figuratively, spiritually. And it is a joyful experience. The angels are singing. The righteous are there rejoicing. There aren't boundaries. There are invitations. Come to the city. Step foot. Get in here. Come. There are throngs of inhabitants. <laughs> Mount Sinai, there was once scared guy called Moses. And in Mount Zion, the city of, or the mountain of joy, it is, there are throngs of angels and the righteous who are there and they are rejoicing. And just as the mountain of joy was the place where the new covenant that we have just remembered was formulated, created, initiated. The mountain of fear is where the old covenant, the law of Moses, was created and originated. Now, back to this idea that we try to simplify things so that we can understand them, and we want to be able to understand everything. We want to be able to turn all that's complex into something that's attainable and we can, we can handle our tendency to keep things simple might suggest that the God of the mountain of fear is different somehow from the God of the mountain of joy because God is present in both situations. He's on the mountain of fear and he's on the mountain of joy. Oh sure, he's the same deity we might say, but he's changed somehow. Somehow in those four or five hundred years between the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament, somehow he, he took a chill pill. He, he, he's a lot more relaxed now. Much more easygoing. I guess old age sets in and sort of gives you a different perspective. But to see to this temptation to simplify God and to say that he is different from the mountain of fear, then when he's on the mountain of joy, is a gross error. In fact, the very next chapter of Hebrews, we read these words, Jesus Christ 
being God, interchangeable. You, you could say God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same God on the mountain of fear as the mountain of joy. Same God, no different. And immediately following the description of the mountain of fear, the mountain of joy, is this paragraph in Hebrews, starting at verse 28. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. We read about that. But now he has promised, quote, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's a hard passage to understand. But the author is saying here that to refuse God's invitation to the mountain of joy is comparatively much worse than the refusal of the Israelites to obey God. Because we know the story, don't we? They were paralyzed, and the longer Moses stood up there, what did they do? They wanted to get back to simple, something simple, something that they could put their hands on, something that they could understand. And they went to Aaron and they said, make us a gold calf. Make us a God we're familiar with, that we can understand, that we can put in a box. You know, there's no justification for the people of Israel that they rebelled like that, that they weren't obedient, and that when Moses came down, he found them worshiping a false idol. There's no justification, but you can kind of comprehend why Israel would retreat to that which is familiar, the gods of Egypt that they were familiar with, But to refuse this incredible offer to come to this mountain of joy is way more offensive to God, you think. So you kind of understand, they were scared and they ran to the familiar. But for us to refuse to go to something that is as wonderful as the description of the mountain of joy. I mean, have you ever put on a beautiful spread and invited people and they didn't come? It's offensive. Have you gone out of your way? And people have shown no understanding of the sacrifice. It's offensive. But the important thing that we have to remember here is the fact that God has not changed. So if he hasn't changed, 
it's still a consuming fire. <coughs> what has changed? Why is the experience of God on the mountain of fear so diametrically different than the experience of God on the mountain of joy? Well, verse 24 makes it very clear. Blood was shed. And not just any blood. The blood of Christ was shed and was sprinkled. Verse 24 says, To the sprinkled blood it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, what, what are we talking about? The blood of Abel. What's what? Blood speaking. This is really hard to comprehend. But you remember the story of Adam and Eve's kids? And how Abel brought to God a sacrifice that was acceptable and Cain brought an inferior sacrifice and in his jealousy he killed his brother Abel it says that his blood God says that Abel's blood cried out this is what he says in verse Genesis chapter 4 verse 10 the Lord said what have you done listen your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Well, what do you think was the message of the blood crying out from the ground? I would suggest to you that it was a cry for justice, a cry for retribution. It was a cry for, 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 for judgment. What's the blood of Christ crying out? What is the better message of the blood of Christ? The better message of the blood of Christ is not a cry for justice, but a cry of justice served. It speaks of atonement. It speaks not of judgment, but of redemption. Not of retribution, but of absolution. Because the blood of Christ was shed, Christ on the cross shed his blood. Because that happened, those of us who are sprinkled in that blood have no fear to go into the presence of the consuming fire because we are covered by the blood. And it is a joyous experience because we know that we will be spared the wrath of God. We will experience freedom instead of bondage. We have nothing to fear. You see, the experience of the mountain of joy is different from the experience of the mountain of fear. Not because God mellowed out over time. Or that Jesus is kind of different than his cranky old dad. No. It's because the blood of Christ sprinkled, sprinkled on every believer removes the threat of judgment, condemnation, the curse. 
In other words, we can enjoy the presence of the one known as the consuming fire because we are immune to its fury. We have to be careful not to sanitize God. To make him a God who's okay with everything because he loves you. He is not okay with everything. He is still a consuming fire. And people who persist and insist on going their own way will experience the wrath of God. He is a good shepherd. But he's also a consuming fire. He is the same God of both mountains. The difference is our accessibility to him. To be able to walk, not just walk, not to grovel, not to crawl, but to rejoice, to party with the God of the mountain of joy even though he still is a consuming fire. If we sanitize God or we diminish him, he no longer is holy. He's no longer that different than us. And in fact, Christ was a fool to die on the cross for us if sin's okay. There's no hell. The universalists are right. We all win and we all get saved and we all go to heaven and spend eternity together. Of course, this isn't the case. At least not according to the scriptures that we hold to be true. As Even as we enjoy the joyful celebration of the mountain of joy, we must always acknowledge that our God is a consuming fire. This is what Paul is suggesting in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There is a sobriety to our celebration. It is grounded in the unchanging nature of God. That he is love. And he loves us. But he hates our sin. And something has to be done about that sin in order for us to enjoy the community on the mountain of joy. He loves us. He hates our sin. And both are what took him to Calvary. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, as Scripture says, you are the same yesterday as you are today. You always will be. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your purity and your holiness. We praise you and acknowledge 
you as a God who is perfect. And Lord, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge how far away we are from the place that you want us to be. But we rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ, you have done what we needed to enter into your holiness without being singed by your fire. We praise you, we worship you, you're an awesome God. Amen.